Hello, and welcome back to The Snub Club, the podcast where we talk about the movies of the most Oscar noms, but no wins whatsoever. I am your host with the most of the droids, Danny Vincent. I will explain this joke later on. Stick around to find out. <laughs> well, I'm Sarah. I'm not really in the mood today, but that kind of fits with this movie, so it's fine. I'm Caleb. I uh, sprung my neck, so I can't uh, can't play the fiddle for y'all. I apologize. Nice. The one person who'd come in clutch with an actual joke. All right. I'm so confused by yours. I'll get into it. Don't worry. At the 43rd, this week, we're at the 43rd Academy Awards. Got a long countdown. With 10 nominations and 7 wins. Is a film called Padded. It wins Best Picture, Best Director for Franklin J. Schaffner, Best Actor for George C. Scott, which is declined, Best Original Screenplay, which, by the way, I wanted to call this out. I wanted to call this out because I think we've had this discussion on the podcast before. Best Original Screenplay at this point in time at the Oscars is titled Best Story and Screenplay Based on Factual Material or Material not previously published or produced. So at this point in time, it is in the, the, the like name of the award that biopics are eligible for original screenplay. Anyway, I just wanted to have that as like a call out because I think that's a contentious thing we bring up occasionally. Anyway, um, Patton also won Best Sound, Best Art Direction, Best Film Editing. Then another film had 10 nominations called Airport. It won one Best Supporting Actress for Helen Hayes. Then, with seven nominations, was Love Story. It won one. It won Best Original Score for Francis Lee. Or Lay. I don't know. I'm sorry. Then, with five nominations, is a film called MASH. It wins Best Adapted Screenplay. Then, with five nominations, it's Tora Tora Tora, which wins Best Visual Effects. Then, there's a film with four nominations called Ryan's Daughter, which wins two Best Supporting Actor for John Mills and Best Cinematography. Then there's an art film with four nominations called Women in Love. It wins Best Actress for Glinda Jackson. Then there were two films with four nominations and no wins. One of them was Scrooge, which was our Christmas episode last year. We are finally getting into it this year. We made it. Um, But then after Scrooge, a little film called Five Easy Pieces. Sarah, what was Five Easy Pieces nominated for? Um... Yeah, it was nominated for Best Picture and lost to Patton, uh, Best Actor for Jack Nicholson, who lost to George C. Scott, who declined for Patton. Uh, Jack Nicholson has been nominated eight more times and has won three. Um, Best Supporting Actress for Karen Black, who lost to Helen Hayes for Airport. Uh, and Best Original Screenplay for Carol Eastman and Bob Raffleson. Uh, they lost to Francis Ford Coppola and Edmund H. North for Patton. Uh, Raffleson was also nominated for Best Picture for this movie. All right. Caleb, did you give historic context, or do you want about the ceremony? Uh, tell me about the ceremony first. It was broadcast on NBC. Also, as I said earlier, George C. Scott um, declined the Oscar for Patton. He was quoted to say the Oscars were a two-hour meet parade, a public display with contrived suspense for economic reasons. Helen Hayes, who won Supporting Actress for Airport, which 
Might I say, having seen Airport, really great win. She's hilarious in that movie. I always love comedic oh, performances winning. Um, but she becomes the first performer ever to win the Oscar in lead and supporting. Um, she'd won previously 38 years prior Best Actress for The Sin of Madeline Claudette. She set the record for biggest gap between acting wins. However, Catherine Hepburn eventually broke that record, which was 48 years in between her wins. Her last, just so we have for context, Catherine Hepburn's last win is at the 54th Academy Awards in 1982. Woodstock, the documentary, gets three Oscar nominations, which makes it the most nominated documentary in Oscar history. The record was later tied incredibly recently. Do you remember what tied it? Flea? Yes, Flea tied it by getting nominees, nominations for Best Animated Feature and Best Foreign Film. Woodstock was nominated for and it won Best Documentary Feature. It was nominated also for Best Sound and Best Film Editing, which is really cool. We should nominate more um, documentaries for editing. Normalize it. Also, by the way, Woodstock's editor was a young woman known as Thelma Schoonmaker, who will soon become very relevant to this podcast as Scorsese is one of our most recurring people. Spoiler alert for the future of the podcast. This is the only time since the six Academy Awards that all five nominations for Best Actress or our star nominees. More interestingly, this is the last time that either Best Actress or Best Supporting, I'm sorry, Best Actress or Best Actor are composed entirely of new nominees until incredibly recently at the 95th Academy Awards, which was just last year. This, this was just broke, of course, by the actor with Brendan Fraser, Austin Butler, Colin Farrell, Paul Mescal, and Paul, Bill Knight all getting their first nominations last year. Um, just so, since I listed them all out, I'll list out the first-time nominees this year in that category, because we're never going to talk about actress again. Those were Glenda Jackson, Jane Alexander, Ali McGraw, Sarah Miles, and Carrie Snodgrass. Good for Glenda Jackson winning it on her first try, considering I would have assumed she'd be someone the Academy takes a while to get around to, you know? Feels like someone that would eventually be overdue. But she was not. This is the most recent ceremony that the four highest grossing films of the year were nominated for Best Picture. As I said right before we recorded, I was going to crack a joke, maybe it will happen this year, but then I forgot Mario is number two, and I don't even want to joke about that. (laughs) Would y'all want to win uh, first time and then never get nominated again, or would you want to be nominated a lot, and then like around the end you get one of those lifetime achievement, but not really awards? I would rather win first go around. Are you saying yeah. never get nominated again, though? Yeah, I, I know that wasn't the case here. But... Okay. Yeah, I would rather win the first go. I think it's more awkward to be a Peter O'Toole or Glenn Close because then it starts being embarrassing when you get nominated for stuff like Hillbilly Elegy because there's the desire to give you one, but then you get nominated for bad stuff, which just adds to your total. So you also, unfortunately, I think Amy Adams has been heading there a bit recently for nominations. But she's like been, she's deserved it multiple she didn't times. She didn't deserve it. Well, she, she, she deserved to win multiple times. Sure. The one and year that she didn't two, get nominated for her best performance, she didn't get nominated for it and she should have won. Yeah, Arrival's coming up a lot of my podcasts recently. We just talked about it on Looking for the Ocean. Um, but anyway. What is our historic context? I'm sure you actually have a lot about the filmmaking. Uh, no, okay, I do. I don't. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I, the thing that 
first and foremost drives me with these historical context segments is what would like an audience member in 1970 think going into the movie, what would inform their opinion. And um, some movies that's easier to do than others. This one kind of gives you a really easy go with a character who is very interested in the environment and how dirty America is and how clean Alaska is and all this, which was a, uh, got me going down a kind of a rabbit hole about environmentalism and the history of that in the late sixties and early seventies. There have been certain types of land preservation movements and environmental movements, uh, dating back hundreds of years, but the environmental movement as we know, it would have been forming around this time in the late sixties, but in the seventies, it would become more of a mainstream thing. The clean air act of 1970 would pass, which was the first major piece of federal legislation. Um, and of course, Nixon would create the EPA around this time as well. And a few years later, the United Nations would have its first um, uh, conference on the environment and figuring out certain things. So the environmentalist movement would have been this thing that was transitioning from this very kind of niche um, thing that was obviously more like activist circles, lots of crossover with the anti-Vietnam movement and the growing uh, anti-nuclear movement. But it was becoming slowly and slowly more mainstream. And eventually you would see things like the Crying Indian ad, which came out in the 70s. Um, and of course, eventually the backlash to it that was led by the oil companies. Okay. Do you guys want my sore context about the film? Because I have some. Because I watched a documentary on the Criterion DVD I checked out from the library. Which will now explain my very poorly put together joke which is that this is the third BBS production. It's BB-8, droids, BB... Anyway, BBS Productions uh, started out... I, would, I just watched a documentary on this, and I quickly tuned out once after they finished five easy pieces. Um, but they began with Head, which you know was the monkeys movie that didn't do too well, but was critically well-liked. And they followed it up with a film that defines the decade, called Easy Rider. And this is the immediate follow-up to Easy Rider from that production company. Um, and this, this is followed up immediately by The Last Picture Show. So, nice four-run film, well, three-run really, because people don't really count head, of very well-received films from this production studio that kind of began what the 70s new Hollywood movement really looked like. And one of Jack Nicholson's first performances was a small role in Easy Riders. I know there's a bit on the documentary I saw where Bob Raffleson, because um, he owned, he was, BBS was named for, he's one of the beats in BBS. They had known each other for a while, and Bob Raffleson was like, I'm annoyed because I wanted to be the person who discovered Jack Nicholson. And they beat me, Dennis beat me to it, even though like I was talking to, because Jack Nicholson started as a writer. And he did some uncredited, co uncredited writing on this. Um, Sorry, I was just looking up on all, one floor of the cuckoo next was. because I, I remember them saying that in the doc, and I was like, isn't that 60s, but 75? So again, that makes sense. I believe Jack Nicholson helped with some writing on Head, they said. Jack Nicholson was just around a bit in the early days of BBS. So they're like, yeah, he was just there, which was pretty cool for them, because they made a movie star, even if BBS kind of fell apart in the late 70s. Although it's not like the people didn't, you know, keep going around, you know? <laughs> they were, uh, yeah. No, yeah, okay. Jack Nicholson co-wrote Head with Bob Raffleson, which is why the documentary mentioned it too. Like this built into five easy pieces, their connection. 
Yeah, I'm sure we'll track a lot of the new Hollywood movement throughout the 70s of the rise and then fall of as blockbusters kind of revitalize the studio system. But you are gonna, there's a lot of this going around of uh, filmmakers, either writers or actors, um, and young directors who are coming out of film school being like, we can do this without the studio system. And a lot of people trying to set up their own, uh, their own um, system outside of the system. And some were more successful than others. BBS didn't last a long time, but certainly left an impact. Yeah. All right. What do you guys think of five easy pieces? <laughs> no one wants to go first. Okay. Uh, I liked it. Thought it was good. First person to admit, and I met this to some other people yesterday, is it took me a while to get through this because I was not feeling great during it. Uh, yeah. So I was a little sick while I watched this. A little bit of a bummer. I still liked it. I think it gets better once the story actually begins, which I feel like might be a hot take. I feel like some people here, no offense. This isn't even an offense thing. I feel like at least there are people in the world who are like probably like the first 20 minutes of five easy pieces is the best part. But then when the plot starts, I'm not as interested. I'm sure there are people like that in the world. I thought the plot was more interesting. Um, but also it's, it's just one of these movies, you know, where it lives a lot in where it changes the setting. And I'm more interested of like when it's changing the setting, you know, like the actual movements in the story rather than the taking in of the scene where it's at. But no, I still really liked it. I thought the ending was very good. Um, yeah, that was a good, solid movie. I get why it was influential, too. It's, again, we keep saying this a lot of these movies we're hitting. Very different from everything we watched up to this point. So. I didn't like it. I... I don't like Jack Nicholson. I'm gonna be honest. I think he plays the same sardonic. You don't like, uh, just Jack Nicholson. He's just he's a sardonic <laughs> asshole in every role that he's in, and I think that's just how who he is as a person, which then makes me question his acting ability. I just I find these types of movies to be so cynical and just like they're just so like drab, and it just feels like I don't know. I just. I get the purpose of the movie, but I just feel like these types of movies, and it's not even like, like there's nothing wrong with a movie that makes you feel bad. I just feel like this is the type of movie that it's like, I don't care about him at all in it. So I'm like, why would I? Oh, he's upset at his dad. Oh, he wants to leave his girl, his pregnant girlfriend. Like, okay, go. Like, <laughs> this is just, it's just a type of person in real life that you would not want to be around at all. Um, I'll agree with that. He he is definitely a sleaze uh, in this and most of his movies. Um, Drop but, your Jack Nicholson impression, Caleb. Do it. Mine got worse in the time it took me to get to that. Well, the thing about being Jack Nicholson, I can't do it. <clears throat> no, um, but I did enjoy this uh, despite that, which is kind of goes against um, some of the stuff I've said in some of our other episodes, especially Bob and Carol, how I railed against the characters in that movie but somehow i'm still fine following the characters in this one i think the difference there is that i i don't think that the film is ever really on his side and from the beginning it's kind of tracking this uh this self-imposed uh tragedy and i think it's very interesting to see that slowly play out this is the kind of movie that you have to let sit and then bubble over and eventually when it does get to that kind of boiling point 
um, when he's with his family. I, I was fully invested in it, and I've really enjoyed um, some of the aesthetics and the kind of uh, characterization of a lot of the Americana in the movie as well, which helped me um, helped me acclimate myself to it. So, all right, five easy pieces. A movie about this guy named Bobby Bobby Erotica. And he is not having a great time. So it's giving me a look of annoyance. Um, it's his name. It's, it's like Aroika or whatever. Well, his last name is Duke. At one point during it, I'm just saying, at one point in this movie, they definitely call him Erotica. But yes, his last I name is. I don't um, even remember them using his middle name. No, I didn't think it was his middle name. Okay, sorry. Is it his middle name? I swore it was like his name he was using with his friends as his last name. Yeah, I don't know because you can't really trust his friend when you meet because that could just be he's like giving him a nickname too. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Maybe it's called Bobby Erotica. That is like a dumb, a dumb annoying nickname a friend would give someone with a middle name like that. But yeah, he's he's a blue collar worker who just seems annoyed with everything and he gets news that his um father is very sick so it's a homecoming movie where he goes home and it's like he's a piano prodigy who never used his gift for anything because he thought the entire scene was phony catching the rye he is holding caulfield and he's annoying (laughs) are you an anti-catching the rye person i like the book i just think that holden is irritating Okay, sorry, I was about to get really vibes. I was going to be like, I hate people who don't like catch on their eye. It's okay to think Holden's annoying because he's supposed to be annoying. That's fine. That's fair. I, the, the other part of the movie that um, you didn't mention, but I think is very important, is that he has a, uh, a woman he's been living with, um, Ray, who is... And a, a Golden Globe winning actress. For the yeah, where, where he is kind of cosplaying the blue-collar life. She is actually from that. Um, she's a waitress. She's uh, she embodies this type of kind of like southern uh, uh, rural kind of hyper femininity, and she is trying to kind of hang on to their relationship even when he is making it very difficult. And um, I, I think that's very important to how certain plot elements play out. Is that she is. Um, she in a lot of ways she's a very uh she's kind of like the straight man to his cynicism. She doesn't really have anything that stands out making her like morally superior, but she is sincere, which is kind of his enemy. And um, so her sincerity helps ground everything that he's doing and kind of reveal uh how how hard he's making his life, and of course those around him. Is there any sequences here you want to talk about? I thought the first moment of this movie, I really got into it, was the thing that's the cover of the Criterion, which is he just randomly decides to play a piano on a truck. It's a really cool image. It's a good vibe. It's a good set piece. I think, um, I, I, I mean, I was bought into it pretty early on. I like the bowling scene a lot. He goes bowling with his friends and his, his uh, girlfriend and you kind of start to feel out their relationship in that. And then throughout 
the next couple scenes, you kind of start having some questions arise. And I think that uh, kind of helps culminate into there's more to this guy that he's not laying on. And that's he jumps on during a traffic jam. He jumps onto the back of a moving truck and starts playing piano. It had been referenced that he was good at piano before this, but this is kind of when we start to see he has actual talent. But even then, it's drowned out by the horns of everyone around him. So it's almost like he's playing the piano on a whim, but also it's like unimportant to the movie because the movie is choosing not to not to emphasize it. Yeah. But then the movie becomes great. Undeniably great. About 10 minutes. It's when they're driving. We get these two other characters who are the best characters in the movie. Well, one of them is the best character in the movie. Everyone doesn't really say much. <laughs> these are two characters who feel like they're coming out of their own 70s film. Yeah, a movie I'd rather watch. It's basically, it's kind of like, you know, in the Muppet movie when like they're, they're, like, they're like, hey, Big Bird, where you at it? That's what these people feel like. Sarah, you're giving a face. Did you hate these characters? Yeah, I do deny that it was the best part because I thought that they were irritating. I just, I feel like everybody in this movie exists to be irritating and we're following this guy who's irritating and is irritated. I just, I don't know. I get the humor. I get the purpose. I get it. But it's just like, just, just stop. Just be quiet. Like, it's just, it's too much. It's too much. So you wish everyone was like the other, the fourth person in the car, who's the other hitchhiker who really doesn't say anything at all. Yes. Maybe I, maybe it's just because I relate to her. <laughs> just being stuck in the car. <laughs> you being in it's just, I, I don't, I think my issue is, I feel like everybody that is in this movie, with, with the exception of, of Ray, but to an extent, her as well. Everybody is so self-important. Everybody is so like, and I know that that's like, that's like the 70s. It's like everybody is in their own bubble and everybody is, they have their own agendas and we're just following one person's agenda that's kind of bouncing around against other people's. But it just feels like, like, I don't know. It, it's, it's kind of, I feel like her purpose is to show why he is the way that he is. Because it's like, why can't people just mind their own business? But it's also like, that goes against who I am as a person. I think I hear where you're coming from. And like, I get it. But also, as a, as a uh, white straight man who has been growing up, you know, not really like this anymore, but you know, there are moments in this movie where I'm like, oh yeah, that was me like, you know, five, six years ago, the disillusionment with my privilege. Well, I was being silent. Well, this. I think, <laughs> I guess this is kind of what I've been trying to I verbalize. I find this more sympathetic than like Taxi Driver. Well, you know what I mean, like, I think that these types of movies, you have like stuff like The Graduate and this type in this movie, and I feel like they are played pretty straight in this idea that this young white man is disillusioned with the world and is like going through it and i like that's okay but i feel like it's hard for me to look at it 
in this sort of lens because it feels like such an archetype at this point. It is kind of the, <laughs> the catcher in the rye sort of story. And it like, for me, it's like, I can't help but look at the other characters and be like, well, what about that? Well, I think that's kind of the strength of including characters like that or his friend or his family as the movie goes on. Even like the recording producers in the scene where his, uh, his sister is recording an album. I feel like what this, it feels, this feels very much like a prototype of MASH would have come out alongside it, but then One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Cool Hand Luke, these movies about disillusioned characters that are very situational, right? Like, you know, a war, a prison, a, a mental facility. But this is like the backdrop is America. And so like you bring in this, uh, these two hitchhikers who very much feel like kind of an embodiment of like Western expansion. And they're going to like the one place in the country that hasn't been uh, untainted yet because that like that ideal of the West, which was like the back of a lot of Hollywood films, it was no longer, you know, it wasn't really uh, a big important thing anymore. It was, we were aware what we were doing to the land. We were expanding at a uh, intense rate. It was easier and cheaper to travel across country. And so the kind of myth of the West and the go West young man kind of uh, kind of attitude was falling apart. And so I think you that's kind of what you see with these two hitchhikers where it's like you're going to the one last place that you could even like live out this kind of American fantasy. Plus, then they go get food. And this was, um, so there were two bonus features on the Criterion Blu-ray. One of them was what I told you was like a BBS like Thing where it's like, here's how everyone moved on to the next one and the next one. Well, then there was one very exclusively about five easy pieces where um, they talked about two scenes in it, basically. One of them was the diner scene, where apparently this was the scene that the director credited for how the movie really caught on with people because everyone tries to go to a restaurant to order substitutions and gets faced with the, you can't do that. And Jack Nicholson was like, I actually did that once at a place called Poopies. I'm, ki- I'm not I'm not kidding. That's the, he goes like, yeah, once I was at a place called Poopies before this movie came out and they weren't letting me do my substitution. So I swiped all my stuff on the ground and walked out. Good job, Jack. Just rude. Just a rude <laughs> thing to do. It is a rude thing to do, but. I'm not, I'm not saying she deserved it. Obviously, because service working is awful. Well, I feel like but we're looking at it from like good. like a modern lens. Like I feel like back then it was like you can't tell me what to do. Like you, it's like back then it was sticking it to the man, but now it's like we're like, oh, I would never, I, I would never tip less than twenty percent. Like we, I feel like being like, can I have a side of toast, please? We don't do that. It's something where I'm just gonna be like, what do you mean you don't like? Can I, can I like get a side order of it then? No, like that doesn't come with toast. I'd be like, I think that's a legitimate thing to get mad at, and I get why people were getting mad about it back then too. I think, yeah, the social implications are certainly uh, interesting, especially since Ray is a waitress. And so you're like, Ray's going along with this, but I think she would be pissed off. And like, realistically, I think she would take the side of the waitress, even if the waitress is being a little, um, 
maybe being a little inflexible with how she's handling the order. But I, I think that, I don't know. I, I think the idea of this character not being able to get satisfaction and then like shrinking that down into one scene is very interesting. Um, but it does raise, like, I think the important thing there is that he doesn't get the toast. And he talks about that with the hitchhiker, where she's like, you, you, you did it. You said what you were feeling. And he's like, yeah, but I didn't get what I wanted. And that's, that's kind of like, I think, a common theme throughout the movie is his impotent rage. Yeah, actually, that's a really good way to put it. For some reason, I didn't actually zoom out and be like, ah, oh, yes, a metaphor for the entire experience here. Because I really was just like, damn, you know, I've, I've gotten, I've been in that situation before. I didn't throw water on the ground, but I was like, well, I guess I'll just get like a burger then. Can you put everything on the side? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but. Everyone, yeah. tip what? your waiters. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was getting in an argument. I always get in an argument with people that aren't from the U.S. who are like, if I go there, I'm not tipping. I'm like, well, then don't come. <laughs> then don't. <laughs> I, do have this, I do have this conversation a lot. <laughs> he does tip but he's like I just don't understand it because we we pay our waiters and it's like okay but this is my culture <laughs> no like it is a stupid system unfortunately you tipping isn't gonna change that I just remember something that went viral like on Twitter I think earlier this year or last year where so, like it was a waitress who like posted something where it was like I just had a like a 25 party like a like a party of 25 Europeans who sat there for six hours and they spent like $700 and they gave me like 20 bucks for it as tip. And people like people replying to her like, well, maybe you should protest and like fight the system. And it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> There's no way to fight this system. There is no gigantic waiter waitress union in the right. US. I... This is a, this is going on a tangent, but I feel very passionately about this. I used to go on Reddit a lot. I don't do it that much anymore, but Reddit is very against quote tipping culture unquote. Where like, let's say you go to like Panera and they turn the thing and they say it's going to ask you a question. Do you want a tip? I have never been somewhere where they they scoff or they're like, I can't believe you're not tipping me. Never in my life. <laughs> you just hit it and they don't care. Like they don't even say. Do you want a tip? They say it's going to ask you a question. Okay. When I get pickup, I tip. They put it in the bag for me. That's good enough for me. I'm going to give you a tip. I just, we do not live in a tipping culture like people think we do. I remember um, the other day, not the other day, but like a couple weeks ago, it was at Mother's Day. My brother just casually mentioned, he's like, yeah, whenever I get drinks, I will just tip a dollar for whatever drink I get. And the thing is, my brother, makes is way richer than me makes a lot more money than me and i know he gets drinks that are like more expensive than like that being a worthy tip <laughs> i'm just like what do you mean you always just give a dollar he's like it's just the right number to give i'm like what do you i give more than that <laughs> what are you talking about i just got extremely angry at him he's like i've never like seen you this mad about like Something I do, I'm like, because it's ridiculous that you make more money than me and I tip more than you do. Um, did y'all see that trend? This was a couple months ago, but it was a it was a viral 
TikTok that I'm sure made its way around reels and all the other knockoffs. But it was like a landlord being like, you should tip your landlord every time you pay rent. <laughs> and they're like, that. why? It was like, I'll raise your rent if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one time you shouldn't tip, folks. Well, a landlord is not a real job. I mean, you should really, I, I'm really, Amen. you should only really tip. I mean, I'm going to probably tip someone at Panera just because I, like, who cares if I click like the 50 cents button. Right. It's like you get, we, okay, you, you got food for $10 and they ask you to tip 10%. Okay, sure. But I, I will always tip at the music box, no matter what. I'll always tip like a dollar or two. Even in, even they're saving my popcorn. It's like, cool. I love this place. You guys get a tip. Congrats. I do think it's worth it with the electronic tips to ask and make sure that's going to them. Cause like uh Nashville's minor league baseball team, those those tips don't actually go to the uh go to the servers and they aren't allowed to take cash because they're not allowed to like handle money because of like a COVID thing. So there's just no way of tipping them. That's sad. I remember a couple of years ago there was some controversy with the Chipotle app. Because somebody tried to tip like $20 and the app said that you can't tip that much. So they restrict how, you, how much you can tip on their app. Um, I think um, <laughs> I think of a couple times I've really ever been mad enough to be like, I'm giving you the bare minimum tip. I know, Even but you still like, give it to I remember like I remember a few months ago I was in it was an Uber brought back the ride chair for the first time. And I like it was like the third or fourth time I've used it and you know I I I got picked up at the Cisco Center and then someone else you know got on the ride share we went somewhere I didn't know and the guy the driver just started yelling at me he's like why'd you add somebody why did you add someone I was like what are you talking about I don't know where this and he's like tell your friend to get out of here and I'm like Whoa. And even then I might have given him a two star on the app I still tipped the dollar <laughs> See, I actually that would be a situation where I would complain I mean, I did. I, I did. I, you know, I think a, I think a two dollar. You can't really give a two star Uber about them asking why did you do this. And I'm like, driver was extremely rude. I do feel <laughs> that like was like the option. I do feel like lately I have been complaining more. I like I got speaking of Panera, my they burned my bread one time, <laughs> and I felt really bad. So I I was like, I was so upset, frowny face. I I remember. This is such a tangent. I'm sorry. Recently at the AMC, I went up after um, Mission Impossible um, Dead Reckoning and just had like a meltdown at guest services <laughs> because I was like, I have seen Fast X, Spider-Man, I saw Indiana Jones, and I'm trying to remember. I think it was number one. Or maybe Mission Impossible was the last one. Maybe it was four. Maybe it was Mission Impossible was the last one. And like after every single one of these movies, I come up here and say that there's something wrong with the projector. And during Spyros, I came in during the trailer, said something was wrong. Everyone's been like, well, don't worry, we'll fix it. Don't worry, we'll fix it. It has not been fixed. I am here. I just saw the movie. It's still bad. <laughs> I just had a complete meltdown there. I, I'm not sure when the last time. Oh, yeah, no, I know. I, uh, my last, my old apartment, my closet would flood because the building wasn't, like the foundation wasn't graded correctly. And under the original management, it was fine because they knew it. And so they would automatically, after a heavy rain, send someone to fix it. Um, but the new management took over 
And it was going on like three months of it constantly flooding and them not fixing it. And I, you know, I'm a pretty peaceful person, but I let some some rage fly <laughs> after that. I do not blame you. All right. We have to get back to fight you if you use this. It becomes a homecoming narrative, which is something I always dig. I like homecoming narratives. I've been trying to crack one for a while in my own writing. Um, because you can never go home again, especially after you've outgrown it. I thought this was interesting. Because I don't know. I felt like I expected the dad to be like as a father, his father has had like two strokes. So can't really um talk anymore, react anymore. But I was expecting like even I was expecting him to get something out of it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he gets nothing out of his dad. Which is, like, devastating in its own way. But it's also, it's like, of course. Because, like, you can't get closure. Because you can't get anything you want, right? Dad reminded me of Brian Cox. So I kept calling him Logan in my head. <laughs> Logan Roy. <laughs> I hurt myself today. Wait, is his name in su- Succession Logan? Yeah. That's hilarious, because like it's not really an the, old man name. The first thing I remember him from is X two, and so I will always remember him yelling, "There are no answers that way, Logan." And so, I'll always remember him as being the guy who says, uh, "I can't say it because Joe will be." Um. <laughs> uh. Anyway, but yeah, it becomes a little homecoming narrative. You guys have. Any specific scenes you want to talk about? Because I, I know I want to talk about the ending, but like the ending is where we end, right? So, I mean, I there's still some scenes before we get there that I don't know. Maybe we'll circle back to them once we get to the family. It's it's interesting. I don't find the I don't find the relationship with the dad super interesting because, like you said, the dad is just kind of there. He's something for uh for Bob to rage against without being able to actually having a closure. I think, I think what's more interesting is his relationship with his brother who has, it was a violinist instead of pianist, unlike the rest of the family, but has now sprained his neck. And so he wears this neck brace around and can't play the violin anymore, but still has this very, uh, this very cheery disposition that clearly grates on Bob. Um, and I find that to be they're they're interesting rivals in that sense because like neither of them are likable because um the brother seems very oblivious to a lot of things. He's oblivious to like his own pain with his neck, he's oblivious to um some of his physical conditions, he seems to be oblivious to the outside world and stuff, which is kind of what Bob went out from the family to experience. But then of course Bob is, you know, this person who has no direction and has no purpose. And so like you kind of have these two, it's kind of like the opposite of a unstoppable uh, object meets an unmovable force. It's a very stoppable object meeting a very movable force. And it's interesting to see them kind of bounce off each other. I did like the actor who played, he's not my choice to add, but I did like that performance. Actually, that is where I got the more succession vibes here even though, you know, all these people are rich people, he was incredibly a Connor Roy vibe of useless older brother who doesn't have much of a reason to be there. Why is Sarah... Which one is Connor? Connor's Alan Rock. Oh. Yeah. 
the love sponge. Sure. Finally, Emmy nominated. Alongside one other great person, another person we don't talk about. Because he got canceled. He didn't really, though. He didn't really. He should have been. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I enjoy that performance. I think it's really interesting. I think, I also think in a weird way, it's, um, I think maybe I'm just getting impressed by costumes these days, but I just liked his costume a lot, counting the neck brace in there. But I also just like the outfits he was in. I thought they were like very rich guy vibes in a good way. You know, like it did what it needed to do because it was like casual wear, but still was a lot. Right. I think this movie, like a lot of movies during this time, I think part of it is kind of, you know, more ad-libbing and more casting non-actors, but there's a lot of idiosyncrasies in this movie. There's a lot of things that are like, you know, it feels very lived in, in a way. There's a lot of like, you know, like him wearing a neck brace or like their friend watching TV. Like, it's just like stuff like that is very like, it's kind of this world building to it. That makes it feel more naturalistic. Yeah. And you know what I thought was interesting was, um, again, I'm going to quote the Criterion bonus features I watched. Um, they interviewed, um, what's her face? Uh, Karen Black. Uh, about, you know, she's just in the documentary. because She was in a lot. She was in like Last Picture Show. She was in Easy Rider. She's in a lot of these. Um, they interviewed her about um, her performance in this. And she's like, um, apparently... Bob Raffleson, which I'm sure Sarah saw on Wiki. There's other like questionable things about him on the Wikipedia page about this art, this movie. Um, but apparently Bob Raffleson was like tired of her like asking questions about her character. And he was like, he was like, can you please just like be way less like be way less smart? And she was like, I will be less smart when the cameras are on, but when I'm the cameras are off, you're gonna have you have to deal with me. But I was like, that's such an interesting way to put it, because I legitimately thought in a way watching this, her performance here, I, I've never seen her in anything else. And I just kind of assumed like, oh, OK, cool. They like picked up someone that's like from the area. And then I see her in this interview. She's got like she kind of has like the drawl, but it's also way more refined. This She's an actor, you know, it makes sense. But I was I don't know. I got more more appreciation for her performance after I saw that documentary. And I bring that up because I feel like a lot of other people in here are doing, you know, their basic thing even jack nicholson is as a beginning like even though this is like his first lead role it's still like he's doing a lot what we know jack nicholson comes to be well, i think when I'm you like, play the sorry no go ahead i think when you play the bumpkin role it's easier to be empathetic or i mean it's hard it's hard not to make them a caricature it's hard not to be like oh i'm so stupid but i think that in this type of movie it's like to be empathetic is really important. Otherwise, and I feel like some of the rich people, like whatever, they're annoying. But I feel like she does a good job of like making. I mean, I saw mixed things in the YouTube comments about if she was, you know, what type of person she was. But I thought for the most part she was she was okay. I mean, I'd be kind of concerned about this becoming like. Uh, I don't think it is to be clear, but imagine this movie like had like a reputation among like 
incels. Or it's kind of a Sigma like male movie. <laughs> I could see. I could see that. I think it's just funny because I think the movie is ultimately critical of him anyway. So it's like it's like these people are like, can't believe I just saw Oppenheimer and like now I want to like make a bomb like you know well, like, they were gonna do that anyways. <laughs> it's just like. I, I, I'm so confused by people. Oh, no, no, I remember actually. Someone told me, Julius told me they were talking to a mutual friend of ours that I will not name. And this mutual friend of ours said that they did not like Oppenheimer because it erased the POC and women of the Manhattan Project, which sure valid. But like my whole response there, I've seen like women in POC say on Twitter is like, why would we? We want to take ownership of the Manhattan Project. It's still history, though. It's supposed to be accurate. Well, Julius had a better response than me, like, like shrugging it off, which was, if you look at Oppenheimer himself, Oppenheimer did not actually really interact with those people. They were at different sites. They weren't really a lot at Los Alamos, which is a, you know, whatever. It's, it's a whole discourse that we don't need to get into, especially because who knows? It could get 50 nominations and no wins. It's very possible. <laughs> To wind back so like, to Ray, win something. Uh, win something. To wind back to Ray as a character, because she is my favorite part of the movie. I really like what Karen Black is doing. Both Tammy Wynette and Dolly Partner on the soundtrack here, and I it's think got those a good are, soundtrack. I was thinking this is one of those movies that wish we had like us like a music supervising awards because that would easily be the nomination I added. You know, but anyway, sorry. Um, I well, I think their inclusion is very important because I think they're both of them have the same aesthetics for what. Ray as a character is kind of going for and it's the kind of aesthetic and Dolly Parton has talked about this a lot where because it is so hyper feminine while also playing into the uh, southernness of it all or I should say rural because they are in the south in this movie the ruralness of it all it is very easy to underestimate people like that and it's very easy to kind of think of them as stupid or dumb I mean one of Dolly Parton's early hits was a song called Dumb Blonde but I think that when you do that, you completely ignore the um, all the intelligence that goes in with how these people navigate the world and how they have a completely different kind of code than a lot of other people. And I think you see that here, especially with at the end when she's been humiliated this entire time. People have attempted to do that. Whether she buys into it is another question. But she still reaches out and you know offers uh, a shared hospitality to invite his family back to their place, even though there's such a wide class difference. She still has that kind of uh, rural hospitality mantra. And I think that's important because it shows that she is within her world, which is separate from what the movie's interested in, but it shows it through these small parts of her performance. Within her world, she is, she is embodying the exact opposite of a person that Bob is because she is very much comfortable with her own identity and comfortable with her um, her kind of role in society and stuff. And now you can you can criticize that, and I think it's very valid to break down what type of character she's playing uh, with a critical eye. But I think it's very important that you see the stark difference between the two of them. Yeah, I would say I was not as into Ray yet, <laughs> but as is because I. I don't know. I generally found the movie more interesting when it was the homecoming stuff. Where granted, when she comes in and the, she's at that dinner scene, that's like the most electric the movie probably ever gets. Um, because it is that clash, like, coming home to roost. But I don't know. I thought she was fine. 
personally. I don't know. I, I say this because I, I feel like I should clarify that because remember I was like, I was really impressed from her video. Uh, like, like in the documentary. I didn't know she was acting so hard. That I guess makes it re- impressive in retrospect. But should we talk about the ending? Sure. The ending of this movie is they stop for gas on their way home. Jack Nicholson. They must be well. They must be in New Jersey because someone needs to fill it up for them. Um, and then they uh, go. Jack Nicholson goes to like the bathroom, looks in the mirror, and then decides to hitch a ride up north with someone leaving Rayette with the car. The movie just ends with this great long shot of like the camera's just there as you see the truck disappear and Rayette looking around, and the credits roll over that shot. Great end. Fantastic end. That's part of the movie. But it was artful in a way we haven't really got from what we've watched so far. That makes sense. I don't mean artful in the sense that it's better than what we've watched so far, but I mean like in the sense where it's like this is clearly aiming for a feeling of emptiness and like letting the audience leave with that in a way that I feel like even in Cold Blood, which is our other movie that I would define as a new Hollywood movie or like the beginning of new Hollywood movie where it's designed to make you leave feel like gutted that still to me kind of has like conventionality and like you know you have the person going like is this okay I don't know if it's okay oh you know like you have the people talking over it or is this just like here's Jack he's not he's never going to be fixed he's always gonna be on the run from himself the end he'll never be satisfied it's a it's a comfortable it's being sorry. comfortable i just remembered something else that happened earlier this week involving hamilton uh, go on sorry it's being comfortable with the with not having closure and the movie's comfortable with it but it leaves it leaves room for you to not be and i think that's kind of the point i would agree with you there it's it's artistic in the sense that's like it's interested in the kind of gray space that art creates between the the creators and the in the audience and I think it's interesting to compare it to Bob and Carol because both are kind of anti-climaxes. But I feel like Bob and Carol leave so much on the table. And I will not necessarily, I mean, I wanted that movie to end. So it's not like Bob I wanted and, to see those consequences lay Bob out. Bob and Carol becomes a fantasy and this very clearly doesn't. It just becomes kind of poetic, but there's nothing in it that up until that point, like it's not like, it's not like Bob and Carol where they're like, Let's go outside and dance. It's just like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, but the anti-climax, like the thing it's building to not happening happens in both movies. But one of those, it feels like it's leaving stuff on the table and one of them, it feels like it's a natural endpoint. Well, I was going to say, and every reason I brought up the ending was because the other last detail I have from the Criterion documentary, which is kind of interesting, is this is a film that is written by, it's credited to Adrian Joyce, who was Carol Eastman, who had her name on the script originally, but she wanted off after they changed her ending. Because the ending was going to be, um, they have that conversation in the car before they stop in the gas station. I can't remember what they say, but like, she starts like playfully hitting Jack Nicholson, I think, or maybe it's everywhere. I think it is, I think it's like he's, she's trying to kiss him and he's like pushing her away. They were going to swerve off, the car was going to flip over. And some, I think it was like going to sink into like 
like a river, and then uh, Ray Hat was going to swim out and go, "Oh, you son of a bitch!" And then we cut the credits, and they changed the ending because. He was like, I didn't think he would. I think it was Bob Raffleson says in the doc. He's like, I didn't. Me and Jack didn't think Bobby was a character looking for his own death, like for suicide. Because that, that's like that ending implies her line implies she thinks it was suicide. Like that's not how I we I've read Bobby. We read Bobby as a person who's damned to always be searching for something more when there's nothing there for him. So I was like, thought that was interesting to bit about the ending. I think that is kind of like the it's kind of like you know how we have the alternating for Bob and Carol where it's like they were they were supposed to just uh give up on the orgy and go watch a show and feel awkward with each other right that was the original alternate ending but then it's like let's sing instead and I think this works better as ending than <laughs> Bob and Carol but yeah I just felt like that'd be an interesting BTS detail to bring up yeah, I don't know how I would feel about that. I mean, you know, we're going off of a description of it, and so I've actually seen it, so it makes it a little bit difficult. But I do feel like and there's it's a something... description from Raffleson too, who you know, yeah, predisposed to make it sound worse than it is. But anyway, sorry, go on. I, I do think there's something more interesting with keeping Bob alive, yeah. and you know, like there's a lot more ambiguity there too. I would agree, Sarah. What do you think? Well, nice of them to change a, a woman's script. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds to me like it would be darkly comedic, which I wouldn't necessarily necessarily hate. All this talk of Bob and Carol's ending makes me... I don't know. I feel like I didn't mention this in the episode, but the ending reminds me of 40-year-old virgin. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to say that because <laughs> that also ends with a musical number. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like a darkly comedic ending couldn't work. I feel like the movie is... I don't know. I feel like... I like dark comedy, so I feel like the movie just, instead of being on this hopeless note, could be this, like... I get it. I mean, I also get that he shouldn't die in the end, because he will never be satisfied. But, I don't know. I I think I would need to see it. I think, though, I think regardless of how that ending is executed, I don't think... Because the key to me is, like, they show the script page on there, like, in the, the thing, and you do see, like, it's the last line that says, it's just the line of dialogue, and then it's, like, end of script. Like, you see, like, they show the script in the documentary. So I'm like, I don't really think a cut to, like, on, like, a one-liner is really the... I, I don't... The way I'll put it is, this is considered, like, a classic of the new Hollywood movement. I don't think that happens if it has a different... that ending. If it doesn't like on a punchline, because I think, because I the the other thing was the documentary opened with like a quote from Ebert's like writing of this movie about how the ending of this movie is what stuck with everyone at whatever festival premiered at because it was like everyone was just silent and didn't move until like it, like the real ended, you know? Because it's like the shot's still there. It's like is that it? Is that it? And it's like oh dang, that's it, you know? Um, I don't know. Again, none of us were there. We're not Lightning McQueen. Um, I I don't know what that's about, so I'm just gonna move on. Um, I'm assuming it has something to do with Cars too. It has something to do with the Cars tunes that I've been talking way too much about. Uh, yeah. 
Um, the one last thing I'll mention, I'm not going to go in depth here. Just like it was, a uh, it was a scene I found very interesting back at the beginning of the movie. Bob quits his job at the, um, at the oil rig. And after he has a fight with his buddy, uh, Elton, and then he walks away from his boss and he sees two people, uh, you know, harassing and attacking Elton. And then he goes and attacks him and it turns out they're feds because Elton's a, is a runaway uh, convict because he knocked over a bank and uh, an Indian reservation or something like that. I find that to be a very interesting scene and I would love to do some reading on what people think that means and stuff. Um, because I think that is such an interesting <laughs> way to both get rid of that character and then move Bob onto the, uh, onto the homecoming journey. Okay. Sarah. Yeah. If we're done. What okay. was this nominated for? Um, best picture, best actor, best supporting actress for Karen Black. And best original screenplay. I think hot take, which is actually hot, I guess, on the show because I've been feeling a lot of animosity towards him. That Jack Nicholson is a good actor. I think he does a great job in this movie, especially for his debut. I'm giving it to Jack Nicholson. Sorry, guys. This I'm, isn't his debut. It's his debut lead role. His debut feature length lead role. I'm. Wasn't he nominated for an Oscar before this? Did not think so. You put me in a weird spot, Danny. He was in Easy Rider, but it's not like a lead role. You're putting me in a weird spot, Danny, because on one hand, I would like to correct that. I do think that Jack Nicholson's a good actor, but on the other hand, I don't really want to go to bat for Jack Nicholson because I don't think he's a good person. So. (laughs) Whatever. You gotta separate the art from the artist. He's nominated for Easy Rider. I'm looking up if Jack Nicholson's legal issues because I'm curious. Well, he was nominated for Easy Rider? Yeah. Oh, wow. But even then, first time leading a movie. Big deal. Um, so wait, you're not giving it to Jack, Caleb? Or is it Sarah's turn to give it? It's Sarah's turn. Oh. Uh, Karen Black. <laughs> I'm also wow. gonna That's it. Look at this. Look at this. Sarah's not here for the woman screenwriter who got her ending change. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also going to give it to Karen Black. I think she's doing some really interesting stuff here. I will say, though, I, 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 I sure, sure. I, we, I already talked about Karen Black. I will say, though, because I did kind of like over Adrian. I do think it's really interesting that this movie about, you know, toxic maildom and like self-loathing, self-aggrandizing is written by a woman primarily. Um, even if they change trending. I do think that's like an interesting thing to think about, especially in like the 70s, pre like, you know, Paul Schrader doing taxi driver, which really, you know, codifies what this type of movie is. Um so, you know, disillusioned man. Caleb's giving me a face. Anyway, yeah. Caleb. What? I've I haven't seen Taxi Driver, but I think this is much more in line with like Cool Hand Luke and One Flew Over. Well, I haven't seen Cool Hand Luke. I haven't seen Cool Hand Luke, so there you go. I still think I, it's interesting a woman wrote this. I feel like Cool Hand Luke is better. Oh, Cool Hand Luke is better. I've seen the clip in a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where Leonardo DiCaprio is deep baked into it. Does that count? 
anyway. don't bring up that movie. Um, I am going to make up an award, right? Or not make up an award. Pick a... <laughs> you can't just give it best soundtrack as much as I said earlier. I wanted to give it that. Let me make up. I have to. I have to come up with something. Yeah, add an um. Um, I'm gonna give the cinematography. There are some lovely shots in this, especially um, uh, kind of transitionary shots, which there are a lot of in this movie because it's a lot of traveling and stuff like that. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna I, give I, it that. I wanted to point this out because I feel like this is worth pointing out. But I'm not giving it cinematography. But Laszlo Kovacs, who shot this, who also shot Easy Rider, also shot um, Paper Moon, What's Up Doc, all these classic films, never got a nomination at the Academy. Never once got nominated for Best Cinematography. Which I feel like is kind of crazy. He won multiple Lifetime Achievement Awards from like other like organizations about cinematography. But the fact that, you know, this guy was incredibly influential on the new way, the American New Wave and how he shot his films never got known. I think that is kind of crazy. Anyway, Sarah, well, what about you? Um, I'll give supporting actress to Lois Smith. The R. That was a sister. Yeah, I'm doing the exact same thing. <laughs> I didn't think you would. You should change it then. Well, Not I my would problem. change the cinematography, which is already... I, I actually do think Lois Smith is really great in this movie. She's not in it a lot, but she makes the most of her scenes, and there feels like there's a life underneath her character beyond what we're seeing. She's kind of... She knows she's just, what we're looking for. She's just kind of weird. She's just kind of like... She's definitely like the odd child of the family, and she plays it really well. Yeah. All right. So that, that closes the book on five easy pieces in a Denny's. Uh, you guys want to know what we're doing next time? Yes. All right. We conclude the 44. Oh, wait, 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 we got to ask. What was better, Scrooge or, Scrooge or Five Easy Pieces? I think Five Easy Pieces. Probably Scrooge, because it was at least watchable. Because you were like, <laughs> thank you very, 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 uh, very much. <laughs> the, uh, the ranking goes the, the hell scene in Scrooge to Five Easy Pieces, then the rest of Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the both guys about. I do think it's really funny these two movies came out. If we did these back to back, we would have been like, what? What is going on in this year? <laughs> but yeah. Um, all right. So next time, we're going to the 44th Academy Awards. And we're watching a movie with five nominations and no wins. Can I have a drum roll, please. We're watching Charles Jarrett's Mary, Queen of Scots, not starring uh, Margot Robbie. Darn. She was in the remake. She was in the remake they made like incredibly recent. But yeah, it's about Mary, Queen of Scots. She, um, got glenda jackson and vanessa redgrave and Wait, a young timothy, timothy dalton. dalton yeah a very young tim and ian holm too is in this there's a lot of brits in this that i know wow british people being a mary queen of scots maybe they should get some scottish well maybe, maybe it's all the same cut from the same cloth all right 
Fine. Danny Vincent. You can follow me on Letterboxd. Listen to my podcasts. Looking for the ocean. Pixar journey. We talk about Pixar. It's a journey. I'm Caleb. You can find me at Caleb from the real world on Instagram and YouTube. From there, you can find my litany of other podcasts, Hot Trash Unlimited, Star Wars Therapy, and All New 52, which are due with our editor, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Joe, if you had to pick one of five easy pieces, which would you pick? Probably the fourth one. Well, there are five. It's it's a reference to like the five easy, like the five, the first five songs you play on piano. Chopsticks, Edelweiss, Under Pressure, See You Again, <laughs> and Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy for Ren and Stimpy. All right. Where's Mary Had a Little Lamb? That's the sixth one. <laughs> you learned that after I remember what I just said. You can find me on Letterboxd. S-G-K, E-S-S-G-E-K-Y. You can find me on Instagram and threads, I guess. E-S-S-G-E-K-Y 29. You can find us, The Snub Club, on Facebook, The Snub Club, Instagram. Yeah, okay. Instagram, Snub Club Podcast, and X, Snub Club Pod. No! I think he changed it to that. He was like, you guys aren't ready for that yet. Well, I purposely, um, I well, I already have, I, I don't have auto downloads on my phone. And I'm really glad because I usually just click update all and this time I'm like, no, nah, I'm keeping the bird. Well, maybe he'll lose 20, 20 million to change it back. Yeah, because the new logo looks like a gay dating app. <laughs> hey. Okay. <laughs> You're going to tell me I'm wrong? I don't know. I don't use... <laughs> you All don't right. have to. You have X now. It's true. X going to give it to you. That's, That's it. it. We're done. <laughs> what? I thought... Oh, okay. Mary, Queen of Scots, next time. Hell yeah.